It's yours, it's mine, it's Normandy FM. As always, I'm Eric Van Allen with my co-host, Kenneth Shepard. How are you doing this week, Ken? I actually have some humbling news to give. Humbling. On this. Yeah, very humbling. I have to correct something that I said in a previous episode, because it was factually incorrect. Wow, you correct the things that you say that are wrong, whereas I yeah. just say wrong things and live with it. I know, that's... Beautiful ca- unknowing. It- it's kind of just been the way that I've had to edit the show. Like Eric says, that's not true, but I'm just going to leave it because we're a very, <laughs> we're a very transparent and forthcoming podcast. But just like when we're wrong, we're wrong. It's just okay, yeah. But so I said in the last week's episode that Mass Effect Three started in Toronto. It actually starts oh, in yeah. Vancouver. Vancouver. No, I yeah. actually I noticed this later when when I was looking up some wiki stuff. I was like, hey, didn't he say Toronto and it's saying Vancouver here? But I wasn't going to call you on it because I'm a good friend like that. <laughs> yeah. Just let you be wrong. Live in the wrong. That's what I, I say. I mean, it's all in Canada. It's the same place. Yeah, Canada is Canada is just one monolithic uh, mm-hmm. snow village. It's mm-hmm. basically Hoth. Uh, that's right. that's what I gather, and so. Uh, you know, if if it's not Hoth, it's the one place in uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Uh, is, is as I have come to understand, I believe that's set in Canada. But mm-hmm. yeah, I frankly don't understand it. Apparently, they all just fight ex boyfriends and run snow speeders around long legged things up there. They the they, they fight they fight evil exes, not ex boyfriends. Oh, it, oh, oh, mm. yes. Mm. Evil exes. Why do you keep... Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, did, you, did you ever read those books? <laughs> no, I've I've wanted to, but the funny thing is, my my cycle with Scott Pilgrim versus the world has been, when it first came out, I loved it. Mm. And then I, I watched it enough times mm. and I got tired of it. Uh, mm-hmm. I've done that with many movies, including mm-hmm. uh, School of Rock and The Emperor's New Groove. Those are very specific examples, but okay. It's uh, and there's a very specific reason for why that we don't need to get into on the podcast. But okay. um, suffice to say that we only had a limited number of movies, and my family liked to do car trips a lot. So oh, I see. There I see. you go. Uh, but with this, the Scott Pilgrim case, I think that was around maybe when I was in high school, going into college. It sounds mm-hmm. like so, that was another case of knowing scarcity. my age relative to yours. That would be right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then I kind of got back into it because I was like, oh, man, you know, I, enough time had passed. But now that I'm older, I don't think I like that movie as much just because mm. I don't like how it kind of makes everything Scott does okay. Yeah. Like, it kind of justifies That's... his actions in a way I'm totally not into because he's definitely not a healthy person by the end of that movie. And that... But it makes him feel like right. he is. That is why... 
I think anyone who likes that movie should read the books instead. And, like, I'm not normally, like, a book-to-movie snob that's like, oh, the book was better! Like, literally, the movie misunderstands the thesis of those books. And it's like, I, I don't even, like, I know that, um, the author was, like, fairly involved with it, too, so I don't know. Because, like, I do know that the movie came out before the last book did, so, like, there's, like, discrepancies in the ending. Um, oh, it's like uh, it's like Full Metal Alchemist or uh, or Game of Thrones even right now. Yeah, where, yeah, yeah. Where that's yeah. a sort of thing going on. Yeah, I I have heard I've also heard that there are differences between the way the book ended and the way the movie ended, and that mm-hmm. uh, you know one might have a better or or at least more coherent and uh, healthier ending possibly for all those involved. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I. I I might eventually get around to that one day. That that is a one day thing. Uh, I'm not. I'm already have like a stack of books over here of, of, that I need to read. Uh, I got a Same. lot of them. I I went on a bender <laughs> recently, um, and I've I've got like a bunch of books from Christmas that I still haven't read. Uh, Circe mm. uh, is is one that's very popular that I still have not read yet, and I've got some other ones. I I picked one up that's like a modern bestseller. I normally don't do that, but I was like, oh, I should probably see what's popular right now it's called they both die at the end and it seems like one oh. you would like ken well I, do, I don't know that book but i'm also, i'm currently reading um what if it's us which is by the author of that book and also mm-hmm. the author of love simon uh, and yeah. it what they do is like they have it's, it's about these two guys and it switches perspective and as, as i understand it each author does the perspective of one dude so like this kind of like changing styles uh, you know. gotcha yeah, this this one all I know is like there's an app that you sign up for and it'll tell you when you die, but then it'll also like pair you up with someone who is going to die at the same time, so you can mm. like spend your last hours together or something like oh, that. Oh, that's that's interesting. And and so it's it's set in that kind of universe and it's told mm. kind of diary style by the two people who get paired up that have never met before. So mm, I'm into uh, this. I'm into this. Yeah, yeah. I read the back of it. I was like, okay, okay, that sounds interesting. But that's not what we're talking about today. Today. Nope. We're talking about Mass Effect 2, and specifically, uh, people who follow the social media of Norm DFM may have already seen this. If you have not, surprise, surprise, we are not talking about uh, Tally and Legion. As we had previously said, you probably have already figured that out by the fact that we have not introduced any guests yet. Uh, Our our guests who will be joining us for that had to call an audible last minute, so we'll be circling back around next week to pick that up. Uh, It was a last minute thing, so... No problems. We here at Normandy FM are nothing if not accommodating. So instead, Adaptable. we'll take <laughs> yeah, we'll take a little detour to talk about uh, a piece of content that already kind of exists outside the general progression of the game. Uh, you can kind of play it whenever you want once you reach a certain point. So it works out all right. Our plan was to talk about this, I believe, after the suicide mm-hmm. mission, mm-hmm. but uh, that's this works out perfectly fine as well. Uh, Lair of the Shadow Broker, which is the very Liara-centric DLC from uh, Bioware that that dives into her ascension to Shadow Brokerhood as we see her in Mass Effect 3. and also kind of fills in a lot of the gaps that I feel existed in Mass that's, Effect 2 uh, about her character. So That's fair. The, the thing that's interesting to me about this, and I want to ask you about this before we get into it... Mm-hmm. You played Mass Effect 3 without having played the before. Do they explain what happened? Because, like, presumably, at least 
maybe Shepard's not necessarily involved, but presumably this happens either way, right? Because she is the Shadow Broker in yes, Mass Effect 3. Yes, she is the Shadow Broker in Mass Effect 3, but it's kind of glossed over, as mm. I remember. Um, or they they might not even mention it outright. Um, I know there is a specific dialogue that happens, uh, because I obviously I had it happen again uh, later on in, in, my play, in my recent playthrough of Mass Effect 3 that I'm still working on. Um, there's a line that Rex has with Liara if you bring her to the um, to the mission on Tichanka, where he makes a slide com- a sly comment about like if the Shadow Broker were to get involved or so- or something like that, mm, and right. like looks at Liara and Liara is just like I'm sure they would be interested or something like that. So yeah, there there are actually multiple points now that i think about it where it's implied that at least the original normandy crew and the mass effect 2 normandy crew are aware of liara's position as the Mm. shadow broker because i believe tali might make reference to it at some point as well uh but i don't know if that's specifically because i've completed shadow broker or if it already existed but i do know that before i played mass effect 3 the first time i knew that liara had been the shadow broker so Uh, but yeah, th- this was actually my first time playing this DLC. Uh, I'd only read about it in abstract uh, leading up to this point. And as a mostly career-long uh, Liara romancer, I was really looking forward to this mm. very specific uh, part of the replay because I'd always heard it referred to as one of the best like DLCs, period. Uh, mm. leading, especially, I believe, around this time was when the Bioshock 2 uh, DLC Minerva's Den came mm. out and there was like a very famous debate over like those two DLCs and which was the right. best and also like just a general chat about how like DLC had kind of ascended past the the days of horse armor and become mm. closer to what it is now where they're more uh, bespoke um, singular pieces of content that can they exist kind of outside of the main continuum but they are this addition that is more like an expansion pack i I think Mm. that was this is when dlcs became more like uh something that is meaty and and gives you like more content and not just more you know toys and tools to play with right so i think like layer of the shadow work was probably like kind of a pioneer for that too because like Mm -hmm. if this DLC hadn't existed in the form it did, I don't know that half of the stuff that, or maybe even all of the stuff that we got from Mass Effect 3 would have existed in the form it does, like Citadel, Leviathan. Um, yeah, I mean, the the evolution of DLC in general, can you can see it in the way that DLC evolved in the hands of Bioware through mm-hmm. these Mass Effect games, because Mass Effect 1 uh, didn't really have much DLC. They just it just had the um, the bring down the sky, yeah, and, and then the, which was uh, just kind of one mission that was very small, yeah. uh, very little dialogue. Uh, it, it, it was by all accounts a very small DLC, and I, I think there was another one that was just sort of a Pinnacle combat add on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then you get into Mass Effect Two, and all of a sudden there is so much DLC. I mean, mm-hmm. but the DLC is kind of split between that horse armor stuff and then the really meaty additions. Right. And you get to Mass Effect 3, and it's kind of closer to where we are nowadays. Still a little stuffed with extra things, but it veers more towards, hey, here are the 
like meaty story editions, and then here are like the multiplayer maps and multiplayer right. things, and and that's much closer to where it is today. Uh, so I think it that's all really interesting, and so playing this already feels like playing a time capsule in a, right. in a way. I mean, which is essentially what we've been doing this whole podcast, but especially here, I felt it. And so I, I wanted to use that as a launching off point to talk about. So Lair of the Shadow Broker, the basic setup is that we are going to get the Shadow Broker. We've got a lead, and we're going to help Liara track the Shadow Broker down because Shadow Broker wronged Liara in the past, and we gotta got to make that right. And so, so Farron, <laughs> um, tell me about Farron, Ken. Well... If you read Mass Effect Redemption, now available on Dark Horse app, um, he was basically like a double agent for the Shadow Broker, as well as kind of like helping Liara try and find Shepard's body between the his or their death at the beginning of Mass Effect Two, and then their mm-hmm. subsequent revival. Um, the comic basically goes through their sort of they're, they're crazy harebrained schemes, and then at the end, it ends with Farron being taken away by the Shadow Broker, and it is it factors into why Liara is kind of intense come the beginning of Mass Effect 2, and so Shepard has this data for Liara that basically not only helps her find like the location of the Shadow Broker's base, but also confirms that Farron is still alive. Right. Yes. See... Due to a segment that will be cut later on because Ken is is nice to me, um, I had completely forgotten that Farron was this guy's name. Uh, I just remembered that Liara had a pal that got lost, and this is honestly the part of the DLC that didn't obviously grab me as much because it was another one of those cases of, oh well, things happened, and you were going to like summarize them really quick for you, but you were kind of supposed to be aware of them before coming in because we did all this like extracurricular extraneous content um and and i was really not into that um it's it's a thing that mass effect started doing that i i'm still not into i and we've talked about it on the show before but i i kind of wish I hope that in the future going forward they they do less and less of that or at least when they do those tie-ins they don't make them as like critical as this. I I that's a lot started... of backstory to relegate to a, what is essentially a you know, a comic well, or, or a story or 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 you know there are other things like books and and things like that that Mass Effect does and some of them you know like I don't it's fine that I don't know everything about Kai Lang and he just, he's almost better the less I know about him because he just shows up. He's just this asshole moron. And I'm like, God, I hate you, Kai Lang. Uh, but here with Liara, I mean, we talked about it in the episode where we first met Liara as well uh, in Mass Effect 2, that it was like kind of this sudden jump out at you. And so to suddenly get that exposition, but it's only going to happen if you either read the read redemption it was called Mm. uh or or if you buy this dlc and play it this is the frustration coming from me having now seen this stuff i'm finally like okay some of the things about liara's character make sense now Mm. but i had to pay to find that out and that's not great my thing on the front of specifically mass effects handling of like extra lore and uh media is 
at the like between 2007 and 2012 when the trilogy came out I feel like they did a pretty decent job of rolling that out along like along that time because like if we're if we're doing something like this or somebody's going back to them now it's like oh there are all these books and comics and things that you can do whereas when they were coming out it was kind of like every six months or so in that time you had something new Mass Effect to like consume and understand so like it went on they're not necessarily, you know, critical plot, but it was, like, more like something that, like, what's your appetite for when the actual game comes out? So, in general, like, I mean, of course, like, a lot of people, or, like, the majority of the people that play this game, it's not, they're not gonna know who Farron is. They're not gonna have done these things. But it was sort of, like, that sort of extra thing for, like, the, the super nerds, like me, to get something in between, like, the long gaps between each game. Um... Like from that perspective, I don't. I think. I think relative to the way that some things, like some other series, have handled external stuff, I think Mass Effect is probably at least has a better understanding of what it's doing. Whereas something like it, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it wasn't like Halo Five. Like there was a major plot point in it from a novel yeah, like ten years yeah, prior. Halo, Halo has that issue as well. That I think it eventually just that kind of became the accepted thing it was like yeah no there are halo novels and obviously like reach halo reach is an adaptation of the fall of reach like it is Mm. a literal we are going to show this thing that has only happened in talk and in the books so um in in that case at least uh yeah it's it, it was a weird era of game development i think where people were starting to experiment with new ways of telling story and telling lore and things like that then now looking back on it now that it really doesn't exist anymore outside of weird cases like halo still having some relevant novels and stuff uh it's it was obviously not as successful and also the problem i think was from a business standpoint it sounds like a good idea because you're like oh well if somebody happens to read my uh to read this book about Mass Effect that they bought at the Barnes and Noble and it's like, oh, this is cool. I should play Mass Effect. You know, like that cross synergy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they realize that doesn't really happen. In fact, it's only going I... to go one way where I think people who play the video games are going to want to read the novels. And even then, that's right. just a subset of the people who you already have playing the video games. It's not working in the direction that you want it to. And I think Bioware, even now, is still kind of in that sort of headspace because Mass Effect Andromeda has three novels associated with it mm-hmm. um they're not again they're not necessarily crucial but like they are nice things to have and I think um I think it speaks mostly to a sort of you know a very dedicated subset of its player base because I don't think like even Mass Effect 3 like Arya's character her entire arc is based off something that happens in comics and mm-hmm. there's like for Mass Effect the trilogy, I think Mass Effect 3, like, I'm starting my playthrough now, and, like, there are a lot of little callbacks to various things that happen in the books. I feel like more so than a lot of other, like, external media and, like, things that are driven by external media, it felt more calculated in that way, because, like, it felt mm-hmm. like those those comics and those novels were all sort of, like, adding on to this one thing that they were all leading to, because Mass Effect 3, you know wraps up some plot threads from the books as well so I don't know like I think if it's more 
like if they know what they're doing going into it and it's not just sort of like oh we can you know here's a place where we can have a reference to this book to this comic this movie etc um I think it works out better and I think in the grand scheme of things I don't think Mass Effect is that bad when it comes to sort of uh expositioning this stuff in game mm-hmm. which is you know that's that's like a whole other conversation another yeah. day when we get to yeah, this is degree. this is a whole tangent that I was just saying to just say like I'm glad I finally got this information that I finally yeah. like got a little bit of this but now that now that we have it Liara's got to put together her plan we've got her her info um letting her know that Farron's might still be around and there might be a way to get him so uh she's gonna take off we meet up with her later at her apartment and the cops are here the fuzz the fuzz is cracking down um and and among them is a specter which is really cool this is this is one of the cooler parts i think of this dlc was getting to see a specter mm-hmm. uh that is not human it, it, mm. basically a specter from a race we had not seen yet um seeing an asari specter was really cool obviously up to this point we've only seen uh other either other human specters or will will eventually become specters or the the turian specters both uh Saren and the the dude that Saren shoots nice. <laughs> I, just, I just like thinking of him as I like to personally picture that that's like Nihilus's first day on the job, and he's like super excited. He's like, "I'm gonna show this rookie the ropes, and I'm gonna be the best Spectre mm. in the world." And hey, Saren, funny running into you here, isn't this wacky? <laughs> and then he gets plugged. Yeah, so but then he like comes that. back, and then oh. he comes back, and then he he got shot in the face, but he's okay, and mm. now he's like. Or Saren, you shot me in the face. <laughs> oh, you man. You knew I was going to find a way to get his IE voice mm. back in more often. <laughs> um, so we talked to Vasir and basically find out that someone has attempted to assassinate Liara. Uh, and we got to find some info, find out where Liara's gone. And, and this part, this part of the game, along with some DLC that happens in Mass Effect 3, is some of the cooler stuff because... I like it when games like this give me the chance to like investigate and find out what's mm. up. It, it reminds me a lot of like the Arkham games when they would give you yeah. that little chance to like, hey, figure out what happened here. And uh, so going through, we get to see all this cool stuff. But there's also a lot of like, there's a lot of N seven stuff. There's a lot of Normandy mm. stuff. For me, that was that was kind of nice because like, oh, Boo was still thinking about me while I was gone. But, but she's <laughs> also doing it for people that she was not necessarily with. Well, okay, so I, I saw your note that you're like, why does Liara have all this stuff in mind? Here's how I see it. Here's how I see it. She's just nostalgic, man. She's, mm. you know, it's it, it was a, I was it was a turning point in her life. I mean, she talks a lot about it, even in the dialogue before this, where she's saying, you know, I was just a researcher, doing you know on some random Prothean dig site, and then I'm flying around to, chasing after Reapers and stuff. All the all the squad mates that you have, their lives drastically changed after Mass Effect One. And so mm-hmm. I, I think that's really reflected. Maybe I'm just thinking about it because I was playing Mass Effect 3 last night, uh, getting it ready for a potential stream that we might be doing soon. And uh, I got to a part where you're talking with Tally about how everyone has changed so much since, uh, you know, over the years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Tally's basically like, I was just trying to chase in my father's footsteps and I met you and now I'm like a admiral and I'm in charge of all these things and... Uh, it's it's weird how that all happens and and so I kind of see for a lot of these characters you know 
being on the Normandy, the Normandy to them represents turning points in their lives where they went from being just, you know, a right. rank and file CSEC officer or a, a researcher on a remote dig site just looking for answers and stuff like that to becoming a major player in the galaxy. So that's how I see this is that obviously mm-hmm. when the Normandy goes down, that's going to affect all of them pretty hard. So no, Ken, I don't think Liara is trying to, trying to get at you. <laughs> um, Do you? Do, well, are you she, sure about she that? She mind melded with you a little bit. That's already like a she little, didn't. yeah, you know, I don't know how you felt. My, we never talked about that. I guess we never did, but that that's fine. But like my, my reading on it is that there are like, <laughs> There are a few characters that are, like, potential romance interests that's... I like that they have feelings for Shepard regardless of whether you initiate it or not. Because it's the same thing with Caden, it's the same thing with Tally, where they express interest in one way or another, and just based on the way that their your relationship kind of goes, it kind of always seems that they maybe still feel that way regardless of what you do. Mm-hmm. And... I like it's it's a weird thing to say. I, I like when potential romantic subjects of a game get their own sort of agency, and like regardless of whether like what you do, they are able to feel one thing or another, and it's not entirely reactive on how you sort of initiate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is kind of weird. I wonder if that's more of a male chef thing because I've been kind of frustrated. You know, I I voiced my frustrations very vocally about how I should be able to romance a certain Corian and the game just will not let me and it's the worst. So I'm with Liara yeah. again. But really that should be an option. Bioware. <laughs> you cowards. Yeah, <laughs> but go go patch go patch your nine year old game. When you make the Mass Effect trilogy collection for the Nintendo trademark switch, hey, you better yeah. patch this in where everybody can love everybody. <laughs> make mass effect what it always should have been the horniest space simulator um except for eve online that is the horniest space simulator this is the second horniest <laughs> um so we we find out that liara was going to meet a contact and we're going to go meet up with them because we want to make sure that liara is okay we start climbing up this building doing all the combat fighting shadow broker agents who are suspiciously suspiciously similar i'm sorry i'm really distracted right now because i'm pretty sure my cat's about to knock my keys off the counter <laughs> um shadow broker agents who are suspiciously similar to uh to mercenary fighters like just with swaps. different names <laughs> yeah almost like their palette swaps and then we get to the top and we find out dun 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 Vasir's bad Vasir's a, a dirty specter she is are all specters just corrupt except for Shepard? Because or or, or dead like Nihilus? <laughs> like are they all idealistic first day rookies or just incredibly corrupt? Because it's it's kind of comical that all the specters we run into are either pansies, as in Mass Effect Three, or with Nihilus. Or, wow. Yeah, I'm sorry, Mass Effect Three. The human spec, the other human specter gets played like a pansy. I'm sorry. You gotta talk them down, really. You gotta be like, "Hey, Udina's bad," because they're apparently not able to realize that just by looking at Udina. <laughs> like, he's got literal resting, Wait, okay. corrupt face. <laughs> like, did you? Jesus Christ! Did you have to like? Did you get Paragon Renegade checked for that? For that Mass Effect Three thing? Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. Did you not? Because, like... Oh, were you... No. You're romancing him, right? Well, yeah, but, like, not technically at that point. Oh, okay. But you you didn't... Did you get Paragon Renegade checked for it? Nope, he just put his gun down and turned it on Udina. Huh. Yeah, no, I had to, I had to Paragon Renegade check there. Huh. Mm, okay. I wonder if it's... Im- I don't know. There, There's some nuts and bolts there I want to find out. Maybe... Mm. I mean, it could just be because it's Ashley, and Ashley hates Cerberus, and still... Is Caden's whole thing like, oh, you were with Cerberus, I can't get over that? Like, is is that his it's, whole... No, his shit is more like... Maybe I, was, I don't think I was wrong about Cerberus, but I think I was wrong about you. Oh. Hmm. We'll talk about that Yeah, we're going to need to talk about this, because I'm not really interested in how this differs, because this sounds different than Ashley's thing, but we'll talk about that later. Either way, it doesn't matter. I didn't bring them along on this mission. Can't in Mass Effect 2, so who cares? Uh, It's, um... So, dun-dun-dun, corrupt Spectre, and we gotta make a, a run after her and Liara. So this is... This is the part, and I mean, I think about this a lot in Mass Effect, but I was especially thinking it here biotics looks so cool in cutscenes, mm. but a it seems like people rarely use them when i would be using it all the time just to do yeah. whatever it's like have you ever read that everyone talks about like the majority of friends the show could be solved if cell phones existed oh yeah well i mean the friends problem could be solved if nobody watched friends because it's a bad television show but Fair. the second option is that they could just have cell phones <laughs> so i feel like so many things that happen in mass effect could be solved if shepherd could use biotics and cutscenes but they obviously but they can't do can't, that because, because shepherd can't always be a biotic right right mm. why why would anybody play anything other than vanguard i mean like except mass effect one where vanguard sucks but by mass effect 2 why wouldn't you play a vanguard mass effect 2 vanguard is literally what this game is to me <laughs> every time i think of the combat in any mass effect game i think of mass effect vanguard mass effect 2's vanguard um i don't know maybe people just want to be a sniper and play infiltrator want to be wrong they just yeah. want to be wrong they do and i don't want to be right <laughs> so we take down we well first we chase after vizier and then do a bunch of shooting and stuff and then we hop in a car and chase after her and Liara's really concerned about the way that we're kind of driving all over the space this all this this part of the game also made me question what the traffic laws are in the mass effect universe because there did not seem to be rhyme or reason they don't seem to be any yeah cool so in the future it's just anarchy in our motorized vehicles that's good <laughs> that's helpful well i imagine most of the time you're like programming a terminal and it just like taxis you right. somewhere because i feel like we see that a lot and then every once in yeah. a while they'll like reach down and like hit some buttons and they'll take like manual control so maybe that's what it's like maybe that's what it is because otherwise say... everyone's gotta learn how to pilot those and that's just gotta be a pain in the yeah that's student a... driver <laughs> things mm. crashing all over the citadel <laughs> oh 13 Management. more student drivers crashed into the side of the Presidium this morning. <laughs> oh, man. I will say, though, Liara as a nervous backseat driver is real solid. Because, like, I think the thing that this DLC really nails is the banter between Shepard and Liara. Because, like, your, your other squad mate's basically a, a mute the entire time, which is fine, because mm-hmm. they obviously didn't want to get 12 voice actors back to do, well, like, it, it's not a few voice lines. This is all about Yeah, it, yeah it, it's, it's very... Yeah. Uh 
it's good stuff but then we get to fight vizier who is as you know well so wait let me not get there first we do have to talk about mariana who, I, uh, who is also a character i'm trying to remember and coming up completely blank on now was this the one that they hold the one she held the hostage. Whole, held hostage yeah yeah and you could just either like shoot through her or or like talk her out of it or whatever i talked mm-hmm. her out of it well, you you get Paragon Renegade checked, and because Mass Effect 2's morality system is garbage, neither of those were open to me. So, I guess I'm gonna shoot through the waitress. <laughs> Look, you gotta be a better or worse person, Ken. Stop trying I to... Literally... Stop being a centrist is what this game is trying to tell oh, you. Oh, my. <laughs> like, I literally have full Renegade at this point, and... Still, I'm having to, like... The fullest uh, Renegade, or the fullest renegade. full Renegade? <laughs> Because I Paragon I mean, checked through it. I was fine. Mariana's alive and breathing in my playthrough. By the way, okay, we're going to bring this up now while I'm thinking of it. You mentioned at the end of your notes for this episode specifically about one certain journalist, Emily Wong, this being the last time we see her in the game. Mm-hmm. That's not true. She's in my Mass Effect 3 playthrough. I'm, let me look into this. Are you sure that she is? Because she's a like, she's a war asset. Like, there's a whole thing where I met her by on name. The Citadel. Yeah, and it's like Emily Wong's gonna help you out. I'm pulling this up too. You can hear my keyboard clacking as I pull this up. I like specifically remember this. You went and saw her in Mass Effect Three. Yeah, I remember. Because like I'm looking at this now, and it says at the very end. Um, Wong realizes the signal yeah, she's no, broadcasting led Reaper forces. I'm reading this as well, and it's saying that she was there. Is there, I mean, so there's Diana Allers, but is there another journalist that you can recruit to your side? No. So, so what is here is, I, when Mass Effect 3 was coming out, they had these, um, they were like social media updates, like for like a fake news network, and it was supposed to be in character as Emily Wong. And I believe she dies at the end of it. Huh. But I, like... I feel like I have this very vivid memory of talking to her, and I, like, say something, and she... I I basically, like, convince her that it's better to, like, report uplifting news to, like, help people out than to... uh, than to just like crap on everything and she's like you know what you're right i'm gonna do my part shepherd and and then it's like she joins you as as a war asset what the i'm, I'm looking at i need she to was get... literally she is literally killed off on twitter i mean goals right right in god's name here we go i think i found it nope never mind good radio i it, it's just breaking my brain right now I, okay so listeners at home we won't take any more time on this but i'm gonna boot up mass effect 3 after this and i'll like if we find out the answer uh we'll address it on the next podcast don't worry um because I literally remember this exact conversation happening. So, Are you like, sure it wasn't in Mass Effect 2? No, because I remember that it it was on the Citadel in that area that's like, um, it leads into the, the Spectre quarters, and it's got that line uh, where people are always was arguing. That, and 
Um, was that her or Algelani? Wait, who's the other person? The one you can punch. It was her. It was not Emily Wong. Okay. We got there. We got there, people. Don't worry. I asked you. I was like, is there another journalist that you can recruit to like to your cause? And, and you, you said nothing. You did not help you, me there. You can't recruit her, though. Yeah, you can. I did. She's a war no, okay. asset in my I mean, Yes, that's not what you... Because you, you mentioned it in relation to Diana Allers, who actually comes onto the Normandy, so that's what I thought you meant. Yeah, but Di- have we talked about Diana? No, it's not Mass Effect 3 yet. We'll talk about Diana We, Allers, we will get... Way. I have plenty to say about her. We'll, we'll get to her um, eventually. Boy, Lair the Shadowbroker. That, that's like the weirdest thing, man. Okay, uh, Lair the Lair Shadowbroker. Lair the Shadowbroker. <laughs> um, Look at all the blue ladies. Yep. Oh, God. Tell me about it. Um, so... <laughs> Finally, uh, we fight Vizier, who's a vanguard and whips ass. I mean, mm. like, at this point, I was like, why can't I just recruit Vizier? Why can't I just have a crew made up of solely Garrus, Tally, a Krogan? I, I don't care if it's Grunt or Rex, or, or they don't have to come along. They, I would just like them there. And then just a bunch of awesome kick-ass Asari commandos. Like, give me Vizier, Arya, and Liara all on my team and just roll out. Bioware, Fair. what are you doing? <laughs> I want to, and let me play as an Asari. I just want to play the all Asari Mass Effect game and be awesome. I'll play it, do it, and then give me the one that's all Kaworian, and I want to just be a Kaworian on the whatever. It could be like FTL, where you're flying around, and you're trying to keep the the not the pilgrimage. What's the word I'm looking for? Can come on, keep Migrant the. Fleet? keep the migrant fleet alive and and you gotta like make decisions about supplies and what to jettison and and all that kind of stuff and oh there's so much ripe for exploration in this universe why did you make a game called anthem (laughs) we'll get to that Uh, Um, we will get to that so after we take down vizier which is a super rad awesome boss fight probably one of the only boss fights in this whole series that i was actually like that was fun that was cool that actually like challenged me and made me play differently but not in a way Mm. that was annoying and it was super awesome and i was super happy um how did you feel about it it was nice to like because because she is technically a vanguard it's like i see her do something i was like i i do that i know what you're about to do because like this is like this is how i fight you you think you can get me no i i I I know what that squat pose is you're about to charge me (laughs) Yep, which means I'm going to charge you right back, which means I'm going to charge her right back, and then my shields are going to be healed, and hers aren't. Huh. And you charged her off the side of the building, it says? I did. Yes, it was, like, I, when I play video games and I, like, I'm on a boss fight, I try to make, like, the finishing of it, it like, it's somewhat, like, cinematic and work, huh. and not dumb, and I literally charged into her not realizing that it was gonna be like the last of her health and thinking i was gonna be able to shoot her one more time and she literally just flew off the side of the building that's incredible i like that <laughs> even as you're going into the cutscene where she actually dies and stuff she still shit talks you like right before she's about to die like, that's mm-hmm. super rad vizier is awesome vizier owns man yes oh uh, but after this we get into Personally, for me personally, what is one of the highlights of this DLC, mm. especially mm. as a Liara romancer, is this conversation yeah. that happens as you're about to leave to go take on the Shadow Broker on his home planet, as we have discovered from from data. But uh, you kind of have this moment where, uh, first I want to hear from you, Ken, what's it like as a person who is not romancing Liara? So she... 
I, I imagine this part's basically the same. It's like she she's basically going over what's happened, what they need to do, mm-hmm. and she's getting like progressively more cold and like uncaring about everything. Which is like it's not the Liara that I know, like romance or not. Like that is not who I last saw before the number blew up. And so like, you get this opportunity to like paragon interrupt her several times as she's going on, and like as the renegade, it's kind of like maybe hypocritical of me to kind of call her out, but it's more like something like something is wrong with what I'm seeing. This is not the person that, like, you know, like, was, you know, like we said, on a protheantic site, just, like, a lot of care in the world, wanting to know more about the civilization. Now she's talking about how, like, she was willing to lose her contact, like, to Vasir, and she's like, I'll do it again, and I would do anything I'd have to to get this done and I'm just like and you you kind of get the opportunity as like just a friend to call her out on that but then the, the conversation kind of goes like I know this is not necessarily what you're used to but we gotta get this done and we can talk about like you can grill me later mm-hmm. but right now we don't have the time so the first thing that I really love about this is what you mentioned those series of interrupts because it made this dialogue feel incredibly natural in a way that felt alien to even the Mass Effect that I'm playing right now. Uh, and just that it felt like it flowed so well. And, mm. and they were very natural interrupts and and they made sense. And I, I feel like the interrupt system is probably utilized the most in Mass Effect 2 because as I've been playing yeah. Mass Effect 3, it they very rarely happen. And... Yeah. They're very And they've almost completely stopped using it. Like they, they, it's still there, but they almost barely use it in Andromeda. Right. And like count on two hands, maybe? Yeah. And and in here it feels like this is what they had been wanting to do with the system and, and the idea that they had for the system was like all leading to this dialogue where you're kind of interrupting her and saying, like, no, you can't you can't just brush that off. We need to talk right. about this. And it ultimately culminates, if you have Romance Liara, um, in a third interrupt where you can talk about us. And there's this great dialogue they have about, like, where Liara is basically saying, you know, I still have feelings for you, but you were gone for two years. And all these things have happened while you were gone. And I can't Mm -hmm. just... I can't just leave that. I can't just pretend like none of that happened and go along on my merry way. And and she's basically like, I need you to understand. Like it was a it was overnight for you, but it was a long time filled with a mm. lot of pain for me. And right. you need to understand that. And it was, it's just this really good dialogue that seems to never happen with any of these romances. And so much of it is because. I think they're trying to shepherd along this path because they, they always want the romances to culminate right before the big battle. You know, it's going to gradually escalate throughout the game. And then right before the big battle is get all the feelings on the table, get all the butts on the table and let's have at it. And then that's the culmination of the romance. I and mean, we've, we've talked about this a lot, but that's like mm. the, the big thing that sucks <laughs> with mass effects, yeah. romance writing and a game that is super well known for its romance. And so, mm. in this specific part, I love it because you have already romanced Liara. Like, you've already hit that point. And so now this is, like, an actual dialogue between two people that are theoretically 
in a relationship or at least mm-hmm. are involved to some degree and they're trying to figure things out it feels so much more natural and more human than this constant escalation in every game of mm-hmm. okay we're gonna bang now and like we're flirting mm-hmm. we're gonna bang now and it's like i i love this part i was like this right. this whole dlc the cost of admission is worth it <laughs> for this one dialogue scene because it's so good and luckily we get a right. lot more that's also very good uh, that we're about to jump into, but it's, I really dug it. Right. Before we jump into anything else, though, mm-hmm. I take your Liara to Sony and raise you, Akeda Nalenko, who I will yes. discuss you know, with just as much passion about why he, I think these two specifically, I mean, it, it worked It worked out that we both romance these two. I think they're, they are the two best written romances in the series, and we will get to that in Mass Effect 3. No, I, I, I totally agree, even as someone who, uh, enjoys the tally romance a lot um i have very little memory of the ashley one and it's mm. frankly immemorable um but i think that the that those are the two standouts obviously because of the fact that they have to go beyond just the flirtation and the foreplay right. but they get to actually be in a relationship and discuss those things it's actually it's funny i'm thinking about it right now because i see that you have left a reji uh, gift gif in the uh in the discord mm. but that's something that i also thought that persona always did very well was you eventually got to a social link with someone but then you could keep going on dates with them and right. kind of talking to them and learning more about them and that's not like the quote-unquote ideal way to play that game to max out all the social links and stuff but it is the way that you can choose to play it and you can discover a lot more mm. dialogue a lot more interesting stuff because of that and i wish i want games to do more of that damn it mm. damn it <laughs> So <laughs> we take off, we launch off, and we go to the super stormy, bad planet where uh, the Shadow Brokers ship is hanging out, hiding in plain sight, if you will, by living in this electric smoke cloud of destruction and stuff. And it's kind of fun here, and you note this as well, too, that there's some like fun poked at mass effect one's battle system and combat system and stuff like that but this this was the part of the game where i was like okay they like found a way to refresh the combat that makes me not hate that i'm doing it all over again not hate that i'm essentially fighting the same enemies i've always been fighting Mm -hmm. uh it's it's a neat little bit uh but more importantly we bust into the ship and we find strapped to a really bad looking table one Farron, who I will at this point say that I totally thought that Farron was going to have deceived uh Liara and that was going to be mm. like the last big twist of the DLC. I was like, that's totally gonna happen, that's gotta be what it is. So but Farron, not not a jerk, not an asshole, just getting tortured for two years like a bro. In fairness, they pulled off that twist twice in Redemption, so uh, I don't know if they can pull it off a third time. So. Hey, you know. But, uh, so this is actually, I think you make mention of it, this is the first time we see a Drell in Mass Effect? No. No, Thane. Thane. What am I thinking? Why am I, like, getting this all confused in my head? I don't know. Yeah. Don't I, look, Farron is, exists in this weird part of my brain where something else, there was, like, memory there that I was trying to remember, but then Farron wrote over it, but now I wrote over Farron, and so now I'm just trying to remember what it was, you know? Don't worry about it. <laughs> Farron is in this weird part of my brain that does not remember things well. Um, but it is kind of cool to see other Drell 
uh, besides Thane, because again, like we only have Thane, Kolyat, and now Farron. There aren't really yeah. any other Drell hanging out. Mass Effect. When you think about it, Mass Effect is good at giving you like singular representatives of a race, mm. but maybe not the mm. whole picture of the race. Yeah. Like Salarians it, come to mind, Turians because we don't see a female Turian until Mass Effect Three, and even then, that's only a DLC. If you haven't played that DLC, otherwise, you won't see a female Turian until Andromeda. So, yeah, it's it's very strange. I kind of it's like kind of wish it was better about that. Yeah, and the the one thing I think that they sort of like made good on when it comes to that is probably the Corians because. Mm-hmm. Tally is, you know, she's the sole representative of Mass Effect 1, and by the time they get to Mass Effect 2 and do her loyalty mission, like, you get pretty much, like, a grand tour of that species and their mm-hmm. culture and her loyalty mission, and yes. it's, yeah. like, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it next week, but I think it's, like, one of the best written things in this game. I, um, one of the best written things in the series. That that mission for sure. stands out head and shoulders above so many things. It's what, it's the reason why I the Quarian are my favorite race in Mass Effect. And right. I just, I think they're so awesome. They're so cool. I just want to, like, spend an entire game just diving into their history and their lore and stuff. Give it to yeah. me, Bioware, you cowards. <laughs> and let me play as an Asari Commando. <laughs> um, yeah. But speaking of sole represent- representatives of their a... race, we, yeah. we fight the Yogg. <laughs> this, this part, okay. So we find out that I was really looking forward to because I didn't know who the Shadow Broker was. And I was oh, like, okay. I was like, oh man, who's it going to be? I bet it's going to be someone from my past. It's going to be someone that was in like a former DLC mission in one that's now like carrying forward, or it's some random character, or maybe it's Emily Wong or something. Who knows? <laughs> it's, um, it's Diana Allers. <laughs> it's, uh, and then it's like, hey, here's this alien that you've never seen before, and. This is apparently what his story is. He's like, he was enslaved and he like learned to read and write and stuff and just kept like becoming more and more powerful until he became the Shadow Broker. And I gotta be honest, I would have been more into the story if they didn't give me all of the exposition for it in about 20 seconds before I killed him. You know? Like. Yeah. I. It was, was kind of a mind. womp womp mm. moment where it was like, oh, this is a cool character that I wish I had known more about before I have to murder him. My thing was, like, back, you know, nine years ago when I played this game, um, the thing that was interesting to me about it is, like, of course the Shadow Broker is something I've never seen before. Like, this character who is shrouded in a secrecy, who nobody has ever seen. Like, even after this... And we've, like, gone through the whole ship and killed everybody. Liar even says, like, well, everyone who's ever seen him is dead. So, mm-hmm. mm. So, like, to me, that was, like, a cool thing to, like... It, and it wasn't, like, you know, a new species that was... Like, it, like for example, like, if this, if this had been, like, a Hanar or something, like, not threatening, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been that cool of a moment. But to, like, it be this massive gargantuan thing bigger than anything we've ever seen before like beyond like not like a reaper or something but like beyond like he's a big fella. bipedal he's a yeah big like fella. this very foreboding presence which was it was cool to me that 
And it, like, and granted, we don't see a Yogg when I mean, we do like briefly in Mass Effect Three. But like, it was this sort of like one and done thing of like, the galaxy is bigger than we're ever gonna know, and that like, you know, something we some something I've never met before could be hiding just around the corner. That was what was interesting to me about it. Hmm. Okay. I I can I can get that I guess. Uh, and also. Liara shits on this dude. Yeah, whole just, life. she just drags him. I mean, she just straight up like burns him. I'm surprised like Shepard was in the back, just going like, "Yas, queen." <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then we gotta fight Mister Mister Yog, Mister Broker himself, uh, which is is fun until this dude gets stuck on like random pieces of geometry. I never really had like that. that happen. I don't. I, it might be a PC was... thing. We talked about it last week yeah. too, but maybe this is just weird like PC stuff cropping up but at one or two points he did get like stuck on geometry i kind of had to like direct his aggro around different pillars mm. and stuff so it was kind of weird but otherwise cool fight um i'm really that's all Shepard's there is to say what, about it <laughs> shepherd's a boss at hand-to-hand combat why didn't like why is this like not seen that often i don't know like yeah I, literally just tackled that thing that it's maybe a fight where again i'm thinking about how much cool stuff happens in cutscenes versus how yeah. frequently we're allowed to do that in the game itself uh you know i don't know how you would ever translate that but well i mean math like three you've got kind of like melee combos you can do like as well as like you know the heavy melee in there as well but like if you press b ren rapid succession shepherd will do like sort of a thing oh i never knew that i need to try that out later then well it's it's yeah. f on the keyboard for me but i never really yeah, well, use whatever melee because by Mass Effect 3, I would started to revert back to my Mass Effect 1 playstyle, just because the, the charge shotgun combo is not as effective in that game, and also just not as fun as it is in Mass Effect 2. It feels like they kind of neutered it a little bit, so... Um, you need to, you know, use Nova. Yeah, I don't like that because it takes my shields now. I, yeah, I... But, but that's, that's why you put... Uh... Okay, <laughs> talking about Mass Effect 3 combat and Mass Effect 2 show. Um, I spec it where my... Where it might not uh, take the shields, or... Well, where, like, where it fully recharges my shields every time. And then I did the I also got the cooldown on my biotics so, so quick that I'm basically nova and charging through that the entire thing, and without, like, with very little cooldown. And it's like, I never... I'm never really in a position where I can't just, like, dart out or slam down and everything that's around me. I don't know. I we'll talk about it in Mass Effect Three, but I also yeah. I think it was also just the point where I was starting to go like maybe a new Mass Effect would need an overhaul of its combat system beyond what happened between Mass Effect One and Two. Like I, I think a game in this day and age could use an even greater overhaul. But which we'll, I mean, in fairness, Andromeda yeah kind of did. Well, it, yeah, uh, I'm talking larger. <laughs> it's mm, but we okay. can, we can get to that. Um, okay. So, we take down the Yogg, beat him up, really just give it to him, and then Liara gets to take over. Well, so here's an important thing. There's a really great scene if you romance Liara where you, like, kiss her under the sparks and stuff. Mm. That That is fantastic. And I, I might, I thought I had a screenshot of it saved that I was going to commemorate the episode with, but <laughs> I think I might have accidentally deleted it, so. Well, oh. But uh, it's a great again it, it's a good thing that they do with the liara romance here and it's a very nice um and then liara gets to take over the broker and 
you get this cool cutscene where she's reaching out to all the broker's contacts and like taking over the network and stuff and mm-hmm. and the kind of realization as she goes on that she's like i can do this is really cool mm-hmm. it's because we've already seen liara like naive liara and then angry jaded liara but now we've got very confident self-assured she knows what she wants to do and she's going to take charge and do it in the in the way that only she can it, it's a new side of liara that we get to see here it's really cool mm-hmm. um yeah. There's a hug her option if you're platonic. Yes, with her? really? Hell yeah. Oh, so that's so that's where I would that's where I kissed her. That okay, so it's yeah. a hug her option otherwise. Got it. Um, mm-hmm. so at this point the DLC is pretty much over, but we do get a little bit of extra stuff in terms of the dossiers. Now, I didn't have many notes um especially yeah, it's mostly just like fun bits and info like little, you know, characters have written poems or haikus or stuff like that um there are some there's some bigger stuff in there that i think we've already talked about like miranda has Mm -hmm. the whole thing about uh finding out that uh she won't be able to have a child uh and she well she's trying to uh have a child and she's not having success and things like that we already talked a lot about the the voyeurism that happens there Mm -hmm. um we we do get to <laughs> I, I'm reading through your list that you have made here. Um, Al Jelani getting hit by a Krogan. <laughs> yeah, of course. That's that is. It's weird that that's like the constant punchline, literal punchline. But yeah, yeah. It's just um, especially in like in light of things that happened today, the day that we're like doing this show. Yeah, it just feels really like fucking weird and gross. I don't. It wasn't funny the first time, Bioware. Why did you like lean so hard on this? Yeah, joke? um, the Liara's dad or dad is that the right way to? I thought Liara. Yeah, okay. So I always thought well, I, I don't know why. Maybe I'm mistaken here. I th- Liara is from uh, Benezia and another Asari. Mm-hmm. And there's like a conver- there's a conversation in Mass Effect Three, which I, since you're questioning it, you probably missed it. Yeah, well, Where, we, we've like, already talked about. I'll, I'll, we might have talked before the podcast and not on the podcast, but I had something go wrong with my Mass Effect Three game where I missed a critical dialogue with Liara that is supposed to happen, but for some reason the game just didn't give it to me. Um, well, there's also but like this might be a, a different conversation one I'm thinking of, and I just yeah, because like exchange. you meet Liara's father in Mass Effect Three. I mean, like, you meet her in you meet her in two, but like they meet each other in three. What? And like you have a conversation with her where she's like. She refers to herself as Liara's father, and then Shepard's like, oh, sorry, I got confused because, you know, if you were human, you both considered the mothers. And then she's like, well, good thing I'm not a human, anthropocentric pack of dicks. So. Uh, wait, when when do you meet Liara's father? Uh, you, well, you meet her first in Mass Effect 2. She's a bartender on Ilium. What? Yeah, like, like, you know where, like, you go from Miranda's loyalty mission and, like, there's a bar across from it. Okay. Yeah, that's where she is first. And then I don't know Wait, if you have to meet she's her. In- the, mm-hmm. She's the, the the one that you, you can do, like, the really, really long dialogue with where you're talking about, like, all the interesting stories and stuff that, that she has. Yeah. And she used to be, like, a character. She used to be, like, a matriarch or something like that. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That What? That's Lara's father. And when do you find that out? In math, well, okay, she... 
she's looking at the picture of Liara in like the video archives. Okay. Um. So that was like that was like the first hint of it, and then Mass Effect Three. Uh. You know. It would have been Ashley for you. You know the conversation you have with Ashley on the Citadel, at like that diner. But at the diner. At the diner on the Citadel in the Presidium. Right. Where where you're like sitting. Yeah. 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 No, I had that she's... with Liara. Okay. Well, then yeah, she's there too. Um. She is the bartender at the bar that's like next to that cafe. And at a certain point, you're able to talk to her, and then uh, then talk to Liara, and then they talk to each other, and then like it's like an ongoing conversation. Like you know how Mass Effect Three does, where like you can pass by people and like listen to new dialogue every time. Yeah, yeah. So like they're having a conversation. Like I think it's up to the point of the coup. God, I hate Mass Effect Three, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> this is why you shouldn't have played ahead of me I no. could have given you okay, all these look, notes look, look I mean we will talk about it in Mass Effect 3 but I'm just going to say in so much as I've already said to Ken outside of these hallowed podcast walls that Mass Effect 3 does a terrible job of letting you know when there are major story bits like that that you should probably go play in fact it almost seems like it's intentionally obfuscating them in a way that is incredibly frustrating even for someone who has played this game before um there are so many things in that game that I would have completely skipped over because it labels them something like investigate crashed ship and then it's like is this a multiplayer tutorial mission or is this something important where i'm going to run into an old crewmate and if i don't do it they'll die like oh okay we'll talk about it when we get to mass effect 3 we will only like three episodes left of this oh boy we're we're almost there we're almost to the best game oh boy so but the dossiers are fun it's a nice little addition and then if I think you can call Liara over to your room to chat whether you have romanced her or not. Mm-hmm. It's just that there will be additional things if you do romance her where you do a little hanky-panky and, and all that. Uh, but otherwise, you can kind of talk to her and you you get to talk about... I like that, I, if I'm remembering correctly, if you've done the suicide mission already, there's like dialogue specifically pertaining mm-hmm. to that and, and how that went mm-hmm. and things like that. So it was a yep. nice way to kind of cap it off and... Uh, felt it if, if this was the last dlc that happened in mass effect 2 it would have felt like a nice way to end it off obviously there is another dlc called arrival that we will be talking about eventually as a nice little segue from two into three but this this was just a nice bit of dlc um it's it's something that i feel we don't see as often anymore the, the only thing that really comes to mind in terms of the way it's both discreet and adds a lot without like taking away from anything else and also like provides a nice little bow on the end would be like the witcher threes dlcs uh which are both mm. also incredible examples of how to do dlc the right way so uh yeah i i was really happy with it i'm glad i finally played it and it, it gave me more context on what is one of my favorite characters in the series and mm. obviously my favorite romance option uh it was super cool i feel like i i know liara a lot more now and a lot of the the, the blanks that existed in that story are filled in in a way that was really satisfying cool is that all is that cool. all we got well i mean we, we um, still went pretty long oh but we well, do have more I mean, things to talk about we do have more than to talk about we we won't spend too long on this 
Um, I feel like we both have what we want to say, and we'll get through that pretty quick. Um, it is important to note that uh, today, what happened to coincide with our recording today, was a report by Kotaku's own Jason Schreier uh, on how Bioware's anthem went wrong. I just slammed my mic by accident oh. while grabbing my mouse to scroll this. Um, and this is basically... Have you ever... Let, let me set this up real quick. This, this okay. is basically like a another Schreier article where he has talked to, I believe the count is 19 different sources about the development of Anthem and specifically what went wrong. It is a very, um, it is a very Schreier article, it, a very like, where did things go wrong? And uh, he kind of spends the time building up you know the story as we know it and then gets into uh all the current speculation on why it went wrong and then delves into what actually happened that went wrong and it sounds like a lot of it is um there's a lot here there's a lot here so so what were you going to to ask me ken have you ever read something and then gotten literally physically exhausted after the fact i'm physically exhausted looking back at this again just because i forgot how long this this article is that is that is true but uh it it is very long and so we're not going to cover the the beat by beat of it but my ultimate takeaway from this is that uh it it sheds some light and and this is why we're talking about it on the podcast specifically it it sheds some light on this kind of grand philosophy of uh, design that exists at Bioware. Um, it, the specific one that Schreier brings up that is very interesting is a term called Bioware magic. And Schreier writes, it's a belief that no matter how rough a game's production might be, things will always come together in the final months. The game will always coalesce. It happened on the Mass Effect trilogy, on Dragon Age Origins, and on Inquisition. Of special note, he does not list Dragon Age 2 there. (laughs) Um, Veteran Bioware developers like to refer to production as a hockey stick. It's flat for a while, and then it suddenly jolts upward. Even when a project feels like a complete disaster, there's a belief that with enough hard work and enough difficult crunch, it'll all come together. Um, And it sounds like, (sighs) even if this did not work for Andromeda, which, you know despite noted defender Kenneth Shepard on the podcast, um, by all accounts, I think Andromeda was at least below what people expected. Um, That's fair. And Anthem was kind of, if, if that was the, if that was the stumbling block, then Anthem was the rake that slammed forward and met them in the face with a resounding crunch. <laughs> and, uh, main takeaways from this for me uh were a that the situation over there is a lot more dire than than people had ever really let on and it was just kind of accepted because they kept having success that this was worth doing but that the conditions there are not necessarily great and at least by some level of mercy this the disappointment from anthem is at least shedding some light on the fact that they're not making games in the healthiest way they possibly can. Uh, And then the second one, which was kind of the larger takeaway was that they did not respond to comment for Schreier's article, which goes through all the issues that came up, people leaving uh, issues with capture issues with 
story writing, issues with prototyping, just all these things coalescing that never had that Bioware magic bring it together. Um, EA did not, EA and Bioware did not respond to comment, but instead, and this is something that if if you've ever dealt with a story like this in journalism, uh, it's it this this happens sometimes. Uh, they wait until they wait until the publication of the article and then put up a prepared blog response that does not seem like they had read the article prior to writing it. And uh, there there are specific quotes I want to pull out here. Um, we chose not to comment or participate in the story because we felt that there was an unfair by unfair focus on specific team members and leaders who did their absolute best to bring this totally new idea to fans. We didn't want to be a part of something that was attempting to bring them down as individuals. Uh, and then the second quote that, that was pulled out by both Trier and that I would like to, to mention is, The struggles and challenges of making video games are very real, but the world's largest but, but the reward of putting something we created into the hands of our players is amazing. People in this industry put so much passion and energy into making something fun. We don't see the value in tearing down one another or one another's work. We don't believe articles that do that are making our industry and craft better. And that is possibly the most tone-deaf response I've ever seen from a company. Uh, Especially given that this article is literally about making working conditions in the industry better and the unhealthy working conditions at Bioware currently... This is literally like this can be seen as a cry for help in some ways. Like this is this is a bad look for EA. This this shows tone deafness on their part and and unwilling to accept the the reason why things went wrong. There are phrases in here that always immediately dog whistle to me that there are higher ups that want things to not change. Uh, things like. Mm people in this industry put so much passion and energy into mm. making something fun that those are words that you often see at least from my own experience when someone's trying to get you to do more than what you're being paid to do or they're trying to get you to do something that they don't perceive as um labor worthy of pay uh you see words like passion and fun come mm. up a lot in say volunteer writing jobs or mm-hmm. uh or, or internships that you should be doing it for the passion you get to right. you get to make a video game isn't that fun how many people get to make a video game why do you want to turn this into about money um mm-hmm. but the biggest besides that i already tweeted this i hate that they're distilling something that is a legitimate criticism aimed at trying to improve the industry by by way of making these issues known and informed by over a dozen sources uh, that they're trying to wave it off as, like, simple naysaying. As, like, oh, you're just being mean. Right. That's bullshit. But also, and this is one that I saw some other people point out, and and once I saw it, I can't unsee it. The, the sentence, but the reward of putting something we created into the hands of our players is amazing. There's a frequent use of trying to separate the critics from the players which is a common thread you will the second you start to see it you're going to see it everywhere it's it's a very useful tactic for um for anyone trying to make it seem like critics aren't critics aren't worthy of being heard because they're not the real players they're not the Mm -hmm. real fans they're they're not the ones who care and anyone listening to this who does think that 
you need to wake up <laughs> because mm. look a we are the players we only know this stuff because we play these things I mean, nobody gets into this gig because they don't like video games that's insane are you kidding would you like wake up and be like i'm allergic to cats so i'm gonna raise cats for a living why would you do that to yourself that doesn't make any sense you're not gonna make any money raising cats just like you're not gonna make any money criticizing video games we all do it because we have the same broken brain symptoms that lead us to be in this line of work. Um, but more than that, trying to make that separation also like fractures the community and leads to, they just want people who care about consuming content, mindlessly consuming right. content. Cameron Kunzelman, a uh, former coworker of mine uh, and, and, I would say good online friend. Never met him in person. Need to do that sometime. I've been out to Atlanta multiple times now. Still have never met up with him. Got to make that happen. But um, Cameron Kuzelman has a very good thread about this on Twitter where he's basically saying that sort of language wants you to just mindlessly consume and just want, you want balance pages and you want DLC and you want battle passes and you want all this stuff. They want you to just consume, consume, consume and never critically think about why you like things. And that's not to say that criticism is necessary i mean you can appreciate the things too but phrasing like that like this does not even want you to appreciate because then that might set standards for what's to come they just want you to open your mouth and receive all the content they're going to ram down your throat and that's not good for anyone involved in the pipeline it's not good for the people making the content it's not good for the consumers buying it the only people it's good for is the people who want to keep that pipeline going and buying so that was my takeaway from that comment and obviously my takeaway from this article is that things are obviously rough at bioware i hope they can write the ship i hope they can really figure this out because i i want this studio to keep making games i want to play the next dragon age i want to play whatever it doesn't have to be mass effect but i want to play whatever this team is going to work on next after dragon age this is i i like the work that they do even though there's been turnover of various people and stuff inquisition was my favorite game that year and i haven't played anthem i don't imagine i'm going to because it just doesn't seem like my type of game but i still want them to continue making things because i think that they can still make the kinds of things that i like bioware for uh and and i never want to see anyone lose their job in this whole industry and so i want them to write the ship really bad and i hope that this can at least serve as a wake-up call to some people Mm -hmm. that there either needs to be some change that happens from the higher up in there or that the people lower down need to find ways to organize and communicate what they want. So yeah, once again, we're ending it on unionize, but (laughs) Um, Ken, what were your thoughts on the article? So as I said, it was physically draining reading this and not just because like the absolute shit show that Anthem seemed to have been in like, its entirety of development like they even say like it didn't really become a video game until like the last year of development and this game was in various degrees of development for close to seven or eight i think Mm -hmm. um the thing that's like physically hurts me is to read about the stories about like how messed up some people got in the studio just from like the stress of working here and a lot of it came from things like Frostbite and weird, like, like with those Andromeda and Anthem specifically, like, poor sort of direction and, like, nobody really knowing what they were working on. Like, they, they use the term stress leave fairly frequently. Right. Um, a, a doc, like, a doctor-mandated period of weeks or even months worth of vacation for their mental health. Holy shit. Um, nothing, like, 
I've li- I, my pen name is literally Shepard. Like I, if you if you looked at all the shit in my room, what I, the series that I probably spent the most money on is Mass Effect. Mm-hmm. None of that is worth this. Right. None of it. Right. And it's just like, even as we're making this podcast, it's like I'm playing these games that are like these things that I consider my all time favorites. Like literally, the, the person who I am today could be completely different without the Mass Effect series. It's like they feel dirty now. Like, maybe... Like, when Red Dead Redemption was coming out, like, the stories were coming out of that, people were like... Or, like, even developers were like, still support what these people have done because they want to feel like people appreciate the work they did, even if it was, you know, as it as it was. Mm-hmm. But it's like... It's, it's just hard... Like, we know... Like, Blake Hester, front of the show... Despite the fact that he was very vocal about Rockstar and the way they treated their employees, still played fucking Red Dead Redemption, and I call him a scab. Like, does that make, like, am I just as bad? It's like, there's suddenly, like, a moral responsibility of me to, like, be more kind of aware of, like, the cost of what I'm playing. Even if it's something like Anthem, which I didn't enjoy, and that's fine, but, like, people, like, like I said, nothing is worth this. Like, and mm-hmm. video games are not, are not fucking worth this. And we... Like there's a there's an awareness about it in like the past like two or three years that is like unprecedented so far, but it's like I don't know, it's like it really shapes your view of just the way that like you consume all this stuff. And like we do it obviously as a job, so like we are there's like a I don't know that if it's right to say there's necessarily a detachment, but it's more like we do these like we are more prone to play things with that stuff in mind whereas like the average Joe that goes to get Mass Effect Andromeda at Walmart doesn't know about like the awful things that people went through to make that game happen right I think there are still ways to make your voice heard and try to affect change without you know not playing the games or I think a good example of this was this last week John Oliver did a segment on the WWE and the issues with um wrestlers not you know being listed as contractors so they don't receive uh health insurance they don't receive benefits Mm -hmm. and they're dying at extremely young ages because of it um right and he he made a point you know john oliver always kind of ends his segments with a call to action uh, a way for you to he's going to bring up this thing that's bad but then he's going to at least provide an outlet for you to try and affect change in some way and and that's why i like him a lot but um he uh he mentions you know bringing signs to to events that you know big wrestling signs and chants and stuff that will call attention to the fact that these wrestlers need benefits and stuff like that Mm. uh and so in that same way it's things like this it's the discourse on twitter it's talking about it it's sharing it with friends it's Mm. making this conversation happen because i think at the end of the day it is going to have to be something like a movement to unionize or something like that that's going to change these conditions because if it was just one studio then that's one thing but i think what we're really learning over the last year or so is that it's not it's most of them it's a lot of it's ingrained in the way that like games are made and released Uh like and because like you know everything's gonna be done like before the end of a fiscal year and like the majority of or not the majority like a fair amount of the audience kind of buys into that they're like you know with pre-order culture like things gotta be done like on schedule and mm-hmm. like you know your 
livelihood be damned. And I'm I'm guilty of it too. I keep making fun of Bloodstained because I backed Bloodstained on Kickstarter. It's the only Kickstarter I've ever backed. And it's been delayed like a million times. It's probably going to get delayed again after saying this. Mm. But like, <laughs> at least they know enough to say like, hey, we're going to back this up. We're going to fix what's going on and we're going to not kill ourselves doing it. And I respect that much out of a developer that they're willing to say that. That's a hard thing to say because there's a lot less understanding people out there who are going to be right. like, and I've, I'm guilty of it too. I've, there have been plenty of times where I'm like, oh, I'm super excited. Bloodstained's going to come out this year and it gets delayed into the next year. I'm like, oh, this sucks, man. I was really looking forward to playing Bloodstained, but I'll get over it, you know? And it's, right. it's better that I learn to cope with disappointment than somebody else has to take constant stress leave and have lasting mm-hmm. marks of game development forever i mean yeah. i did just make comments that like oh you know words like passion and energy and fun are usually bad signs of something but also like making games should be fun it should be yeah. your day job should be something that you enjoy doing and right i don't think that's a radical concept but yeah i hate the idea of like these developers going in like dreading work every day but then knowing that this is the only thing that they can do or you know and I think uh, the more that we on our end, specifically the writers, the the people who, the, the noted figureheads of the community, me and all 1,300 of my Twitter followers, <laughs> um, uh, the more that people call attention to it and the more that these discussions happen and that they seep out, you know, outside of the circles that we have and into other places, like when we finally have people on damn r slash games talking about the need to unionize, that's when I'm going to feel like there's an actual groundswell happening. Because <laughs> if you can convince them to do anything worth doing, then you've done a miraculous Herculean task. But yeah, I really hope that it gets better for these folks. And so our, our, our best wishes go out to them and that situation gets better for them. And, and I would, again, I would love to see them turn Anthem around and really turn it into something to where it has that success story like Destiny or Rainbow Six Siege has where it comes and, out rough and, and eventually the articles will go up like, it's, there's never been a better time to be playing Anthem. Yeah, and like I said, however many episodes ago, I feel like based on what I played, there is a game there that could be that, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, and obviously I want to play Dragon Age, so please... Make, make the dragon I, I want a con- for that. I want a conclusion to the Mass Effect Andromeda story. Like, I don't think that's... Wait, a conclusion? We have a conclusion to the Mass Effect. Oh, to the Andromeda story, you mean? Or... Yeah. Oh, well, I'm okay, you and, like, the, the dozens of you out there. <laughs> there are dozens of us! <laughs> on that note, we're going to end it this week. Next week, we should have our pre-scheduled guests coming on to talk about tally and legion and their loyalty missions we're really looking forward to that if you can't tell we're we're super excited to have some guests on we're also super excited to talk some tally and some legion who doesn't love that stuff it's good stuff all around after that we'll be heading into our suicide mission heading off to take care of some dang collectors and then maybe we'll we'll take a little trip around some dlc and get set up for our big third season which we've already got plans in the works for it's going to be super exciting y'all uh we're super excited about it so that's going to be it for this week Hope to see you again next time. Be sure to tune in to Normandy FM. Normandy FM. Normandy FM. Normandy FM. Normandy FM.